This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. One of the goals of Office Hours is to let the listener know about the work of the faculty in the classroom and in the study. For more than a decade, I've had the privilege of editing a series of translations of important Reformed works, most of which have never been translated before into English, and none of which have appeared in print in English in the modern period. The series is called Classic Reformed Theology. There are now five volumes in the series so far, and it's published by Reformation Heritage Books. The first volume, published in 2008, was William Ames' A Sketch of the Christian's Catechism, translated and annotated by Todd Rester. This early commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism was the result of William Ames' work with divinity students as a private tutor in the Netherlands over a number of years. It's a handbook, and it gives us a good window into how the Reformed were using the Heidelberg Catechism and how they were explaining Reformed theology, piety, and practice in the early 17th century. The second volume of the series appeared in 2009 and was featured in an earlier episode of Office Hours. It was Caspar Olivianus' 1576 Exposition of the Apostles' Creed, translated by Lyle Birma with an introduction by yours truly. This is the second of three works by Olivianus on covenant theology. You may know him as one of the co-editors of the Heidelberg Catechism. Zacharias Ursinus was the primary author, but Olivianus had a hand, certainly, in it. And in this volume, Olivianus sought to relate his developing covenant theology to the kingdom of God and to the church by means of explaining briefly the Apostles' Creed. Volume 3 in the series appeared in 2016. It's the first ever English translation of Johannes Coxeus' The Doctrine of the Covenant and Testament of God. first edition was published in 1648, and we published the third edition from 1660. Casey Carmichael did the translation, and Willem van Asselt, the late Dutch scholar, pioneering, really, in the Dutch study of Reformed Orthodoxy in the modern period, wrote the introduction to the volume. This is widely recognized, to quote Van Asselt, as a classic of continental federal theology. It's easily one of the most important volumes in the history of Reformed theology. Casey and I discussed this volume in an earlier episode of Office Hours. And, of course, you can find these episodes at wscal.edu slash Office Hours. That's one word, O-F-F-I-C-E-H-O-U-R-S, and there you'll find all the episodes. Volume 4 appeared in 2019. It is J.H. Heidegger's Concise Marrow of Theology. With that volume, Casey Carmichael joined me as co-editor of the series. J.H. Heidegger was an important 17th century Swiss Reformed theologian who is most famous for his work with Francis Turretin against the Amaraldians and in defense of the reliability of Scripture. This translation is the first volume by Heidegger ever to appear in the English language. Ryan Glomsrud, my colleague here at Westminster Seminary, California, joined me on Office Hours to talk about this work after it appeared in print. And I'm happy to announce that Volume 5 of our series has just appeared in print. It is a uh, commentary on Ephesians from 1590 by Robert Rollick, translated and introduced by my colleague Casey Carmichael. 
Robert Rollick lived from about 1555 to 1599 and was one of the most significant Reformed theologians in Scotland in the late 16th century. He's an important figure in the development of Reformed covenant theology. He was a reader of Calvin and was especially influenced by one of Calvin's students, Caspar Olivianus, and also by Zacharias Ursinus, another of Calvin's students. Olivianus died in 1587, and Ursinus died in 1583. So all these volumes are still in print. Volumes 1 through 3 are available in paperback, and volumes 4 and 5 are available as hardbound volumes from Reformation Heritage Books. You can find that series at heritagebooks, one word, dot O-R-G. That's heritagebooks.org. Olivianus and Ames are also available as ebooks if you want to have them in that format. In this episode of Office Hours, I'd like to talk with you a little bit about the new commentary on Ephesians just out, as I say, from Reformation Heritage Books and uh, published originally in 1590 in the first edition and then again in 1593 in the second edition because it was so popular. He was born to an aristocratic family, and he was well-educated. He attended grammar school in Sterling and University at St. Andrews, where, after graduation, according to John Howey, who wrote a 17th-century collection of biographical sketches of various Reformed theologians in Scotland, he also served as a professor of philosophy at the ripe old age of 23. He taught philosophy for several years at his university and, in 1583, was made founding professor and principal of the University of Edinburgh. He was also an active preacher in the pulpit most every Sabbath, and during the week, he also met for prayer with students and then would give a devotion on a passage of Scripture. I think in order to understand the value of this commentary, it will help us a little bit to appreciate the commentary if we know a little bit about Rollick's theology. As I mentioned earlier, Rollick marks a turning point in Reformed theology because he was a covenant theologian. He understood Scripture, all of Scripture, to be covenantal. And he read Scripture, including the book of Ephesians, as part of God's covenantal revelation to the church in Christ. Going all the way back to the early 1520s, the Swiss Reformed theologian Johannes Oikolampadius had begun to work out a covenant theology via a series of biblical lectures that he was giving. And at about that same time, 1523-1524, a man with whom you're probably more familiar, Huldrych Zwingli, one of the pioneers of the Swiss Reformed churches and the Reformed Reformation, was working out a more coherent and consistent covenant theology in dialogue with Anabaptist critics. His successor, Heinrich Bullinger would publish the first survey and summary of the Reformed approach to the covenant of grace and the unity of salvation and the unity of the Bible in 1534. But until the early 1560s, no one had really worked out what we now know as the covenant of works. But in the early 1560s, Zacharias Ursinus, whom we know for his work on the Heidelberg Catechism, his commentary on the Catechism, had begun to teach his students in Heidelberg explicitly about a covenant of nature before the fall between Adam and Christ. The standard of this covenant, he said, is the law of God. The condition was obedience to the law, and the outcome was 
eternal blessedness. Remember, this was a covenant made before the fall. This was, as we would come to call it, the covenant of works, or as it was sometimes called, the covenant of nature, or the covenant of law, or the covenant of life. Those were all aspects of the same covenant that Reformed theologians were coming to see that God had made with Adam as the representative of all humanity before the fall. Ursinus taught that Adam could have obeyed the covenant of nature, but he did not. And in so doing, he broke the law and plunged himself and all humanity into death and judgment. And we see this in his Summa, a large catechism he wrote, probably as part of the preparation for the writing of the Heidelberg Catechism. And in question 10 of his Summa, his large catechism, he asked, what does the divine law teach? And the answer was, it teaches the kind of covenant God established with man in creation, how man behaved in keeping it, and what God requires of him after establishing the new covenant of grace with him. That is, what kind of man God created, and for what purpose, into what state he has fallen, and how he must conduct himself now that he is reconciled to God. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The second covenant, according to Ursinus, in history is the covenant of grace, which is made after the fall. And we see that in question 30 of his Summa. Where then do you get your hope of eternal life? And the answer is from the gracious covenant which God newly established with those who believe in Christ. What is that covenant? It is the reconciliation with God gained by the mediation of Christ, in which God, because of Christ, promises those who believe in him that he will always be a gracious father and will give them eternal life. They, in return, respond to him by accepting his blessings in true faith and, as is fitting for thankful, obedient children, by glorifying him forever. And both parties publicly confirm this mutual promise by visible signs, which we call sacraments. So Ursinus taught that the covenant of works is law and the covenant of grace is gospel. And this was the covenant theology that Robert Rollick learned by reading Ursinus and Olivianus. And he used it to explain the book of Ephesians. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking about the first ever English translation of Robert Rollick's commentary on Ephesians from 1590 and 93. And this is just out from Reformation Heritage Books. So Robert Rollick, Scottish Reformed theologian from the late 16th century, taught that there is one covenant with two aspects. And again, he learned this from Ursinus and Olivianus, who had added this feature to Reformed theology in the early 1560s and had begun to work it out through the succeeding years, through the 70s and into the mid to late 80s. As I say, he taught one covenant with two aspects, and those two aspects were law and gospel, which was a distinction that he had learned from Martin Luther. And if you know Luther and you read this commentary on Ephesians, you will hear echoes of Luther. But he also, as I say, learned it from Ursinus, Olivianus, and I think from Calvin as well, by whom he was influenced. And for Rollick, as for Ursinus and Olivianus, the covenant of works before the fall is a law, and the covenant of grace after the fall reveals the gospel. Both covenants, or both aspects of the one covenant, as Rollick would put it, promise eternal blessedness, but they do so 
under different conditions. The covenant of works promises eternal blessedness on condition of perfect obedience to the law of God. The covenant of grace promises eternal life on the basis of Christ's obedience for us and upon condition of faith. And faith is resting, leaning, and trusting. Now, it produces good works, but faith itself is not a good work. Good works are a fruit and evidence of new life, true faith, and union with Christ. Let's go back and focus a little bit more on his development of the covenant of works, since this is his real contribution to Reformed covenant theology. Remember, Ursinus died in 1583, and Ursinus died in 1587. So, in the 1580s and 90s, Rollick was doing his work in the immediate wake of the Heidelberg theologians. And so, it's a very exciting time in the history of Reformed theology. And in Rollick, we see a more focused attention on the covenant and a program to read the entire Bible as a covenantal revelation. And so that marks an advance in the history and development of covenant theology. Of course, you and I take that for granted now that, of course, this is how we would read scripture. But in the late 16th century, there weren't that many people putting it that clearly. He said at one point, Now therefore we are to speak of the word or of the covenant of God, having first set down the ground that all the word of God pertains to some covenant. For God speaks nothing to man without the covenant, for which cause all the scripture, both old and new, wherein God's word is contained, bears the name of God's covenant or testament. The covenant of God generally is a promise under some one certain condition, and it is twofold. The first is the covenant of works, and the second is the covenant of grace. Paul, and he cites Galatians 4.24, expressly set down two covenants, which in the Old Testament were shadowed by two women, as by types, to wit, Hagar, the handmaid, and Sarah, the free woman. For he says, these be those two covenants. Let us then speak something of these two covenants, and first of the covenant of works. The covenant of works, which may also be called a legal or natural covenant, is founded in nature, which, by creation, was pure and holy and in the law of God, which, in the first creation, was engraved in man's heart. For, after that God had created man after his own image, pure and holy, and had written his law in his mind, he made a covenant with man wherein he promised him eternal life, under the condition of holy and good works, which should be answerable to the holiness and goodness of their creation, and conformable to his law. And that nature, thus beautified, with holiness and righteousness, and the light of God's law is the foundation of the covenant of works. It is very evident, for that it could not well stand with the justice of God to make a covenant under condition of good works and perfect obedience to his law, except he had first created man pure and holy, and had engraved his law in his heart, whence those good works might proceed. For this cause, when he was to repeat that covenant of works to the people of Israel, he first gave the law written in tablets of stone. Then he made a covenant with his people, saying, Do these things, and you shall live. Therefore the ground of the covenant of works was not Christ, nor the grace of God in Christ, but the nature of man 
in the first creation, holy and perfect, endued also with the knowledge of the law. For, as touching the covenant of works, there was no mediator in the beginning between God and man, that God should in him, as in and by a mediator, make his covenant with man. And the cause that there was no need of a mediator was this, that, albeit there were two parties entering into a covenant, yet there was no such breach or variance between them that they had any need of a mediator to make reconciliation between them. For, as for the covenant of works, God made this covenant with man as one does with another. For, in the creation, we were God's friends and not his enemies, thus far of the ground of the covenant of works. And he goes on to say, The thing promised in the covenant of works is life eternal first, not righteousness. For that man in his creation was even then just and perfect by that original justice, as they call it, unless you will say that the righteousness of works was promised in that covenant, for which righteousness sake, after that man had wrought it, God would pronounce and declare him to be just. So there you hear Rollick clearly distinguishing between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, and emphasizing quite pointedly that uh, we were created before the fall with the ability to keep the covenant of works and thereby enter into eternal blessedness. And he will go on to say, and this is from his more famous work, A Treatise of God's Effectual Calling, that in fact Christ came in his human nature under the covenant of works, obeying as our representative that we might stand before God on the basis of his righteousness by grace alone through faith alone. Well, let's turn our attention to the commentary itself. And you're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking about Robert Rollick's commentary on Ephesians, which is just out in English from Reformation Heritage Books, available at heritagebooks.org. This is volume five in the series, Classic Reformed Theology. One of the more neglected aspects of Reformed theology is the work of early Reformed theologians as Bible commentators. Rollick wrote commentaries not only on Ephesians, but also on Daniel, Romans, First and Second Thessalonians, on select Psalms, the Gospel of John, Colossians, Galatians, and Hebrews. This is true, by the way, of a lot of our theologians. We don't have very many of those commentaries in English. They have yet to be translated. We mainly know our older Orthodox Reformed theologians from their works of theology, but many of them also lectured on Scripture and published commentaries in Latin, as I say, most of which remain untranslated. So there's a lot of work yet to do to get these works into English and into series like the classic Reformed theology series. So it's important that we have Rollick in English on Ephesians because it's a window into the way the early Reformed Orthodox read Holy Scripture. Indeed, their commentaries were often the product of their lectures and sometimes sermons on various books, just as it is today. Rollick's commentary on Ephesians was the product of a series of sermons through the book of Ephesians. 
And the commentary was, as I mentioned before, so popular that the printer in Geneva had to publish a second edition in 1593. He dedicated the commentary to James VI, King of Scots, and of course, the King of England. Howey's 17th century biography criticizes Rollick for being naive and credulous and for allowing himself to be used by the king to weaken Presbyterianism in Scotland in favor of episcopacy. However that was, his later readers didn't allow his political mistakes, if that's what we're going to say he made, to detract from his value as a theologian and as a commentator on Scripture. This commentary is highly organized, but it's also very warm and pastoral. It begins with an outline of the book of Ephesians to kind of give you an overview of the book, and then he turns to offering his comments on small passages at a time. And as you open it, and I have it here right in front of me in the studio as we're sort of working through it and looking at it, so as you begin to read the commentary, you'll notice that it's not exactly the same sort of commentary that we might expect to find from a university or seminary professor today. There's not a lot of background information on Ephesus or Asia Minor, and so for that, you will want Steve Baugh's commentary on Ephesians, and you can get that through the bookstore at wscal.edu slash bookstore. And uh, I recommend that highly, and of course, if you want an introduction, you can always listen to the Office Hours interview I did with Dr. Ball on his commentary on Ephesians, and uh, you can find that at wscal.edu slash office hours. Nor does uh, Rollick, in his 1590-1593 commentary on Ephesians deal with the sort of critical issues that we might find in a modern commentary on Ephesians. For example, he never addresses the question of authorship. He just assumes, as everyone did in the pre-modern period, that uh, the Apostle Paul is the author of Ephesians, and of course that is the position that uh, most Bible-believing scholars take. And we can see in this commentary their background as a collection of sermons. He often finds three points in the passages that he analyzes together as a group. We call these pericopes. There are a number of qualities that impress me about this commentary, and I'll tell you about them in a moment. Firefighters, they all save lives until Jesus returns. Everyone helped by a doctor, a nurse, a firefighter, or a police officer, however, will die. And then what? There is another calling that is vitally and eternally important, the ministry of the gospel. At Westminster Seminary, California, we've been educating men for pastoral ministry since 1980. Scripture says, After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's John 6, 66-69. Jesus does have the words of eternal life, and he's commissioned his church and his ministers, his servants, to announce them to the world. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to pastoral ministry or to some other kind of service. We're grateful for your prayers and support as we seek to continue to fulfill our calling to help men and women fulfill their callings for Christ, his gospel, and his church. WSCAL.edu, 888 Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. As I was saying, there are a number of qualities that impress me about this commentary. First is that it is so thoroughly 
and warmly evangelical in the old-fashioned sense of the word, in the 16th century Reformation sense of the word. Rollick was a gospel preacher, and it shows all over the commentary. Even when he's explaining the bad news about sin and judgment, which he does, he can hardly wait to get back to the gospel and to encourage believers with the good news. So, listen to this part of his explanation of Ephesians 1.11, which is uh, page 41 of our English edition. Quoting now, There are two parts of the word, law and gospel. Each is the instrument of the truth. But in this passage, the gospel is called the word of truth par excellence. For after he had set forth the word of truth, he adds to this passage of declaration the gospel of salvation. It's called the gospel of salvation because it is the happy and cheerful news of our salvation. The gospel not only announces salvation to us, but it also reveals the very righteousness of Christ, by which it happens that we are saved. And the whole reason of our redemption in Christ, the incarnation, humiliation, and finally the exaltation of Christ. But because our salvation is a special part of the news and of the end of the rest on account of which we believe in him, in the other things, mention is therefore made of it above all. It must be known, in addition, that the gospel is announced to us as salvation, not in the nude and without effect, but as the power of God for salvation. That is, it is the efficacious news through the Holy Spirit, who, while all things are announced historically and explained, works in our hearts repentance and faith, by which efficacy the gospel differs from the law. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking about the first-ever English translation of Robert Rollick's commentary on Ephesians, just out from Reformation Heritage Books. The second thing I noticed about this commentary is that it is unabashedly theological and practical. Rollick explains a verse or a passage, and then he draws inferences from it that touch on points of Christian theology, piety, and practice. For Rollick, these three things are always connected. Christian theology leads to piety, the way we relate to God, and then it leads to Christian practice, the way we live out the faith in the church and in our daily life. He doesn't separate these three things. They're always connected. And this is illuminating because in a lot of modern commentaries, and I'm not now thinking about Dr. Baugh's commentary, but in a lot of commentaries, it's considered bad form to address doctrine. Some commentators are just technicians. They're almost allergic to doctrine, even when the author upon whom they are commenting is teaching or clearly implying doctrine. A lot of contemporary commentators are even more allergic to addressing Christian piety and practice. But not Robert Rollick. He is, as they say today, all about it. So let's listen to a bit of his exposition of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where Paul teaches, as we were just hearing, that our entire salvation, so not just our justification, but our sanctification and ultimately our glorification, right? So justification, sanctification, glorification, they all are part of that complex we call salvation that Scripture calls salvation. It's all through faith alone and not by works. And Rollick writes, quoting here Paul, not by works, and he says, the third argument is taken from the fact that works are contrary to grace. When they are removed, 
there is a place for grace. And he quotes Paul, your salvation is not from works, therefore it is by grace. And he continues, but here, two kinds of works must be shown, one that precedes regeneration, the other that follows it. There is no question about the prior kind, for salvation by the confession of all is not from that kind of works, except perhaps the works of preparation the papists may object. But it is not asked about these now. But what sort of works those of preparation are, learn from these, which above were mentioned in explaining the miserable condition of the Ephesians and Jews equally before their calling in Christ. The whole controversy is about the other kind of works. However, we say and affirm that we merit nothing. For where there is merit, there is debt. Therefore, the same gracious God is also a debtor. These two things cannot agree, for something cannot be paid off by mere grace and by debt, unless you say that in Christ he owed what he nevertheless granted to us freely, having considered our account. Rollick was also a pastor. Like all the Reformed in the British Isles and across Europe, he not only explained Scripture, he also applied it. He spoke of the application or the use of a doctrine or a passage about 130 times in this little commentary. After all, the whole commentary is only, including the index, about 253 pages, and the commentary itself is about 238 pages. So that's remarkable that he is speaking of the use of a doctrine or the application of a doctrine 130 times in 238 pages. So pretty much every other page, there's some practical application. So let's listen to his application or his use of Paul's doctrine of election in Ephesians chapter 1. Again, Rollick writes, We learn in this passage that the use of the providence and election of God is twofold. First, it excludes the merits and works of the creature, and therefore Scripture diametrically opposes works and the plan of God, and he cites Romans 9.11, as the plan of God, which is according to his election, that is, not from works, but from calling, in order that it might remain firm. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has called us, not from our works, but from his plan and grace. And this not only holds place in predestination and election itself, but also in the execution of election. For here, none of our merit intervenes. On the contrary, it happens in the execution of reprobation. For sin as merit always intervenes between the decree and the execution of the decree. We learn that the second use of the divine plan is to curb our curiosity lest we devote too much attention to seeking the reasons for the deeds and works of God, like those workmen brought together by the head of the household who were sent into the vineyard. And he cites Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 and following. Acts 15.18 is the signature passage about this matter. From the beginning, all who professed Christ, even the apostles themselves, were very anxious about the calling of the Gentiles. Since there was much debate, Peter expressed his opinion. Paul and Barnabas confirmed it. 
Finally, while James was arising, after he had confirmed the same opinion from the testimony of Scripture, he added these words, All God's works are known to him by every age. In these words, he reverses that eternal plan of God about the calling of the Gentiles, and in it, setting aside all curiosity, he teaches us to rest in his example. For God, bound to no one, calls whomsoever he wills, whensoever he wills. Only works must be given to each person in order that he may arrive at the end of his race without stumbling inquiring nothing into the judgments of God. You will learn here, in addition, that the counsel of God is always efficacious, for his providence is not burdensome, but he decrees what he provides. In this way, the decree is also efficacious, and what he decreed, he does in his time. Well, there you see Rollick offering a little pastoral counsel to those who might be tempted to ask God whether they are elect, when in fact, as we will read later on in Rollick, if you read the commentary, you will see that he is counseling people to be looking to Christ and searching for their confidence in Christ. The question is not, what has God done? The question is, do I believe? And if I believe, it is because God has known me and loved me in Christ and brought me to new life and true faith. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Well, let's think finally about the significance of this commentary. We're talking about Robert Rollick's commentary on Ephesians, and you're listening to Office Hours. We're looking at this brand new translation, first ever translation of this 16th century commentary from 1590 and 1593 on Ephesians from an important Scottish Reformed theologian at the end of the 16th century. Rollick marks a real turning point in the development of Reformed theology. Where covenant theology was an important feature in Calvin's work, probably more important than has sometimes been recognized, as I said before, Rollick described all of Scripture as covenantal. He said, again, all of God's Word pertains to some covenant. And that covenant, he taught, has two aspects, the covenant of works before the fall and the covenant of grace after the fall. The condition of the covenant of works was obedience to God's law, and the condition of the covenant of grace is faith in Christ the mediator who obeyed the terms of the covenant of works for his elect. And as it was for Ursinus and Olivianus, the covenant of works stands for the principle of law, and the covenant of grace stands for the principle of gospel, that Christ has done all for you, and all that Christ has done is received by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone. And uh, we are not alone in receiving Rollick's commentary warmly and gratefully. His commentary on Ephesians was well-received in its own time. Theodore Beza, who lived from 1519 to 1605, who was Calvin's successor in Geneva, was so impressed with the commentary that Beza offered to publish any of Rollick's works thereafter in Geneva. And he endorsed the commentary warmly and at length. Beza said, For why should I not esteem as a treasure, and that most precious, the commentaries of my honorable brother, Master Rollick, upon the epistle to the Romans and Ephesians, both of them being of special note among the writings apostolical. So I judge them, and I pray you, taken it 
to be spoken without flattery or partiality, that I never read or met with anything in this kind of interpretation more pithily, more elegantly, and more judiciously written. So as I could not contain myself, but must needs give thanks, as I ought, unto God for this necessary and so profitable work, and rejoice that both you and the whole church enjoy so great a benefit, desiring the Lord to increase with new gifts and preserve in safety this excellent instrument, especially in these times wherein, through the scarcity of skillful workmen, which laborer in the Lord's vineyard, and by the decrease of those well-exercised and experienced soldiers and worthy Christians, Satan and his companions begin again to triumph over the truth. More recently, my colleague and our professor emeritus of New Testament, Steve Baugh, writes of this commentary, Robert Rollick was well known for his warm-hearted teaching and preaching in his day. It is a cause for real gratitude to receive now Rollick's comments on the warm-hearted book of Ephesians, translated from his Latin into clear modern English. This is not a long commentary, particularly by modern standards, but it is very solid and well worth consulting by anyone interested in the insights to be gleaned from our forefathers in the faith. It is the work, as noted by a warm and passionate preacher and teacher, but also of one who makes clear and logical distinctions in his interpretive insights. Casey Carmichael, the translator, the other folks responsible are to be sincerely commended for bringing Rollick's Ephesians to us. Simon Burton, who is John Lang Sr. Lecturer in Reformation History in the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh, writes, Casey Carmichael is to be commended for his fine translation of Robert Rollick's commentary on Ephesians. The translation is clear and easy to read and will provide access to Rollick's rich Trinitarian, Christological, and covenantal reflections for a new generation of readers. The companion translation of the eternal approval and disapproval of the divine mind, which is appended to this text, will further allow readers to engage with Rollick's theology of predestination, a major theme of the Ephesians commentary, as they plumb with him the depths of human misery and heights of divine grace. And then finally, just recently, Scott Swain from Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando was reading Rollick's commentary on Ephesians 4.3, and he writes, We owe a debt of gratitude to Reformation Heritage Books and to general editors R. Scott Clark and Casey Carmichael for the latest publication in their classic Reformed theology series, Robert Rollick's commentary on Ephesians. And I won't read all that he writes here on Rollick on Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, but let me read just a bit. He says, in reviewing Rollick's comments on Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, for teaching I am to do next week, I was struck by the profundity of his treatment of the virtues Paul commends in this passage. I found his treatment of Paul's exhortation to bear one another in love especially helpful, given the intensity of conflict we are witnessing inside and outside the church in recent days. According to Rollick, Paul's call to tolerate one another in love is a specific application of the more general virtues of modesty and gentleness. Whereas modesty involves having a restrained and humble opinion of oneself, gentleness involves restraining our anger when wronged by another. But tolerance, as Rollick understands it, is not mere passivity in the face of interpersonal injustice. Tolerance is a form of love. And uh, Scott goes on to explain the significance of that. So, 
I hope that whets your appetite for this volume and for the other volumes in the series. Thanks to Dr. Casey Carmichael for his excellent work and to Jay Collier, who has been shepherding this series through the press since the beginning. We have another volume already translated, and this will be an important collection of smaller works that has never been translated before, and these works are by some of our more famous Reformed writers. We'll be working on that, Lord permitting, in the coming months. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.